I'm Jim Santos, and this is Bigger, Better World from International Living. In this podcast series, we introduce you to a bigger world full of communities that are safe, welcoming, beautiful, and largely undiscovered. A better world, a friendly, warm, great value world where you can live richer, travel more, invest for profit, and enjoy a better life. So let's get started. Hello once again, and welcome to Bigger, Better World. If I say Malaysia, for most it conjures up images of an exotic land with jungles full of tigers and monkeys and an almost otherworldly landscape. But what if I told you there was a region in Malaysia that more closely resembles the British countryside than that mental image? Well, that's what we'll be talking about today as we speak with Keith Hockton, longtime international living writer and host of the podcast There's Always Tea, about his article, Murder and High Tea in the Cotswolds of Asia, which you can find in the May 2023 issue of International Living Magazine. Keith, welcome back to Bigger, Better World, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm happy to be here. Keith, your article, Murder and High Tea in the Cotswolds of Asia. Before we get started, I know I watch an awful lot of British TV. In fact, I've told my wife before that we could probably head up a murder investigation in London because we've seen so many <laughs> British series. So I know what the Cotswolds is, but for our listeners who may not be as familiar with England, uh, could you give us a, an idea of what you mean by the Cotswolds of Asia? Yeah. So the, the Cotswolds in England are this uh, amazingly pretty leafy you know, part of England that you go to ramble and and you stay for weekends and you know various different things like that. It's, and it's, um, it's quite lovely. And the, the Cotswolds of Asia came to mind when I was writing the Cameron Highlands article because it's very much the same. And it's it's a it's one of the original hill stations that the British created when they first came here. And if you don't know what hill stations are, uh, they were effectively created by the British to escape the heats of the plane. So when it got too hot, controlling areas like Kuala Lumpur or Penang they built these amazing villages up in the highlands, up in the hills, up in the mountains, where they could actually move their entire governments to during the, the hot seasons. So they're very leafy. They're very cool, probably about five to 10 degrees cooler than the, the lowlands. Um, you know, very similar to the, the life that the English remembered in England. So, you know, it was quite familiar to them. Yeah, I believe the Cotswolds of England is has been designated something like areas of extraordinary beauty. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And the and the Cameron Highlands are exactly that. You, it's really and it's like entering an ethereal, leafy world because the jungles are so thick and so dense. the The fauna and the flora up there is just outstanding. You'll never see anything like it anywhere else in Malaysia. It's quite unique. So they um they they ended up building a little village up there and um. And it's still there now. From your article, it sounds like this really became kind of a, a British enclave with no locals allowed unless they were, you know, there as servants. Yeah, most of the hill stations, and there's there's six hill stations in Malaysia, really started off that way. And they were places where the British would escape to. So effectively, if you can imagine the the upper crust British regime that ruled uh, Malaya at that time, they couldn't really let their hair down. So they couldn't really be themselves. There was always an image that they had to project. And with the hill stations, 
that was an area that they could go to where they could be completely themselves. They could let their hair down. They could not wear the uniforms they had to wear. They could actually feel like they were actually back in the United Kingdom. And they became places up until probably the the 1940s, 1950s of really where only the expats could go. I suppose the separateness helped with the overall look of the place now. Like you have a very strong British influence and not so much yeah. a Malaysian style of architecture or, or anything. No, most of the houses there were built in the 1920s and 1930s. And back in those times, they had a lot of British architectural firms uh, in Penang and in Kuala Lumpur. All the buildings up there were built by those guys. So they they very much have a an English feel to them, even to the extent that they, they put in rose gardens and picket fences, you know, white picket fences. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they went all out so that literally when you woke up in the morning and stepped outside, it was like, I'm in the Cotswolds. I'm here. Of course, a big part of the British lifestyle is also tea. I understand there are also tea plantations in the area. Yeah, there's tea plantations there now, but there weren't t- uh, tea plantations there when they when they started building those those villages. Um, but keep in mind also at that stage, Britain Britain was actually Great Britain was actually in charge of India as well, and India didn't get its independence from the UK until 1947. So up until you know the 1920s 1930s, when these places started to be inhabited, they were shipping everything in from India. So Darjeeling tea, you know, all of these kind of amazing teas were coming in directly by boat because it wasn't that far away. So that was the heyday for the British in Malaysia. If we get a little bit of history here, it was the 20s and 30s. Heyday of a different sort. So the the British arrived in Malaya in 1786. So they've actually been here a really long time. Um, and before that, obviously, the Dutch were here, as you know, we've mentioned, and the, and the Portuguese were here before that. So when the British came, uh, they brought everything British with them. And you have to keep in mind, too, that it wasn't the, the British army that arrived in Malaya. It was the British East India Company. So they were a trading company that were colonized. They were the ones who colonized India. They colonized Malaya. They founded Singapore. They founded Hong Kong. So they were in Asia, you know, very early on in the um, in the 1700s. So Malaya very quickly became all things British, you know, as soon as those guys arrived. It's interesting how much of uh, British history and culture is from tea. You know, that's yeah, <laughs> it's been such yeah, a driving force in their history. And considering that they they effectively stole it from China, you know, in mm-hmm. in the 1700s, that's pretty amazing. So, in, in addition to the uh, tea plantations, you mentioned that there are also tea baths there now. Have have you tried that? <laughs> I I have not tried that. My wife has tried that, um, and she said it was you know it was quite relaxing and and luxuriating, you know, etc. I mean, it's it's when you get up to the Cameron Highlands, it's it's hard to. Uh, to imagine the Cameron Highlands now without tea, without, you know, tea-infused kind of therapy places because they've really kind of taken over in a, in a very big and a very positive way. Um, and it's one of the reasons now why you go to the Cameron Highlands to to basically kind of let your hair down a little bit and, and have therapies like that that you can't have anywhere else in Malaysia. I picture you sitting in a, a huge hot tub with a little rope with a paper tag <laughs> on the end of it hanging over the side and... Yeah, a little um, Darjeeling being dipped into yeah. it or something like Everyone's that. Everyone's slowly changing uh, skin color as they, they soak in the tea. 
It pretty much it's it. You're not far wrong. The um the bath the bath is actually like the the tea therapy. It looks like a dirty bath with dirty water, right. but obviously it's not. <laughs> you know they change it. But it's um I saw it and I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. That doesn't appeal to me at all. But um but she said it was good. Now how how high are the uh, Cameron Highlands? The Cameron Highlands, a bit like the uh, Penang Hill, it's not one particular hill. They're made up of a series of highland hills. Sure. And the, the highest highland hill there goes up to about 1,400 meters. Okay, so these aren't really mountain ranges. They're Oh, well, anything anything over 1,000 a, a feet in old British terms is classed as a mountain. So if it's 1,001 feet, it's a mountain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> When did uh, you first visit the Cameron Highlands? Oh my gosh, I went there for the first time with my mum and dad in 1970. And back then, it, it actually hasn't changed a great deal since then, to to be honest. But the the major difference was the road. So back in 1970, you had there was only one road that went up to the Cameron Highlands, and you went up. You, know, you had to drive up the road before 9 a.m. in the morning. And then from 9 a.m. through to 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it was down traffic only. And then from 3 to 5, it was uh, up traffic only. So, yeah, you had to time it uh, to get up and down. But even back then, you know, I, Jim, I remember I remember it distinctly because my dad was a, a great walker. And one of the great things about the, Hammer, the Cameron Highlands is that there's trails everywhere. And there's also an amazing way of bird life there that you don't get anywhere else in Malaysia because it's it's so wet and so high. So mm. I remember kind of traipsing around there, you know. How long, how long ago was that? 1970? What's that? Oh, my God. 50 years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, That's when you realize you're getting on, doesn't it? Yeah, I try not to think about that too much. but. <laughs> Crazy I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about the hiking trails. Uh, my wife and I are very much into hiking ourselves. How many miles would you say there are of hiking trails through the Highlands? Literally hundreds of miles of hiking trails, wow. and the there's some very well known ones which will take you through to you know astoundingly beautiful waterfalls and pools that you can swim in, and there's the lesser known ones that will take you higher to where you can you know, watch birds and see other, you know, mammals that are there. Um, there's a lot. And it's um, every year there's a um, a massive bird watching fraternity that goes up there. They all meet there because the um, the bird life there is just so diverged from the the rest of Malaysia. So quite a lot. And the the best way to to actually find those trails, because everybody does the main trails and you, you really don't want to do trails that everybody's walking on because it gets muddy and messy, as you know. Right. Talk to the locals. There's lots of local food uh, outdoor stalls. Um, literally, as you climb the mountains, they're all there. All of those guys live up in the mountains, and they'll all tell you about you know hiking trails that you've never heard of before. And are these well marked trails? Yeah, yeah, very well marked. Um, so you're you know you're never going to get lost on them. Um, and uh, additionally, the the ranges up there, if you don't come up with your own GPS devices, then actually you can rent them from those guys as well. Okay, yeah, that can be convenient because I've been on trails before that were supposed to be marked, and it's kind of a light white dab on a rock every quarter mile or so with no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a. They used to do hash runs up there, and the the locals got really. I don't know whether you know what a hash house harrier is. Do you guys have those? No, I haven't heard. At least under that name, I haven't heard it before. 
Okay, so Hash House Harriers are a running group that's been around since probably about the 1920s, and they're effectively a paper trail running group. So someone sets the trail, and then uh, a quarter of the way into the trail, the trail will disappear, and you have to search around to find the start of the trail again. And, you know, it's a bit of find and seek, uh, hide and seek while you're up in the, the jungles. Well, the locals got really angry about the amount of paper that was being dropped on the trails. And this is only going back about three years ago now. So they followed the guy on this one instance. They followed the guy who was actually laying the paper trail and halfway through they collected all the paper. So when the hash group <laughs> got up there, and there's and there's about 70 to 80 hash runners, they were literally stuck up there for about six hours until yeah. someone actually came and rescued them. <laughs> and there's never been a hash run up there since. Well, I've been on hikes like that, and I can't blame the locals, so, so I feel yeah, for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, it's the, the, the problem with it is, though, that for the local community, it's a double edged sword. It actually brings in a fair bit of money because, you know, for the weekend, you've got 70 or 80 guys going up there just kind of thrashing around in the um, in the jungle. Hmm. That's one side. The other side is that you're actually, you know, dropping paper everywhere, which is never a good thing. Another area that sounded really beautiful and a pretty fascinating place that you brought up in the article is the Mossy Forest. Oh, yeah. Stunningly beautiful. That's actually like. It's akin to going back in time. Uh, you know, the the moss is is very very old. Some of the trees up there go back. Like the oldest tree that they have in the mossy forest is just over six hundred years old. So there's a lot of history with those trees, and it's quite interesting with the study that they're doing on on trees now, which is one of the reasons why this area is so popular because the trees are so old. Is they're actually the Malaysians are actually thinking about turning it into a a place where you can be buried if you so choose to be buried. Hmm. And what they found, with uh, especially with the tree roots, there's a fungi that connects the tree on the tree roots to the other trees in the area. And they found that over a, it can be a six-kilometer radius, trees are basically connected with this uh, fungi called mycelium. And this fungi actually allows the trees to talk to each other. So it allows them to, if they're, if, if they don't have enough nutrients, uh, a tree can send a message to another tree through the fungi, and that tree sends back more nutrients for the tree. And this has all been proven, um, you know, over the over the last ten years. And what they're now saying is that if you have the if if trees have the ability to actually communicate with each other through fungi, and they can and they absorb everything that's around them, if you're then buried in a forest like the mossy forest, for instance, where, the, where you've got trees that are over 600 years old, as you start to decompose, you actually start to get absorbed by those trees. And isn't that an interesting thought that suddenly you maybe you don't die, but you actually become part of the tree? So anyway, the Malaysian government's kind of playing around with that idea, but I think it's a kind of cool idea. It's yeah, so a shades of avatar there. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's yeah, it's true. So it's a, it's a very beautiful forest. It's a very old forest. Uh, you get... There's uh, mammals up there that you don't see in the lowlands. Uh, you get uh, miniature deer up there, um, which are tiny, tiny, tiny things like um, – what's the, the small dog? Like chihuahuas. They're about the same size oh, as a chihuahua, wow. just these miniature deer. And so they're up there. You also get plant and frog life that you don't see in the lowlands because it is so wet and so humid. And it's, it, it's really an amazing place to not even tramps around, but just to – sit there and just absorb, you know, absorbing the the kind of the energy that's around you. It's a very special place. Yeah, it really sounds uh, unique. Yeah, it really is. 
you should come and I will take you. <laughs> well, we'd love to do that. What are the surrounding villages like? I assume there's not just one uh, central area here. It's spread out over quite a good territory, isn't it? Yeah, the there's quite a few of them, and the Cameron Highlands population is quite an interesting one. You know, you've got old colonels that have lived up there for old British military, you know, who have lived up there for 40, 50, 60 years. Mm -hmm. um, quite a few of them, actually. And they, what you find with these older families that have lived up there that long, they never actually leave the Cameron Highlands. It's a very enclosed, embracing community. And one of the guys I was talking to there, um, at one of the, the minor villages, he actually hasn't left in 40 years. He's never been outside uh, because he sees no need to do so. Where do you normally stay when you are visiting the Highlands? The most common place for us is Jim Thompson's bungalow, purely because I've read, I don't know whether you know the story about Jim Thompson, but effectively, do you know that story? No, I was going to ask you about that. As a matter of fact, the murder part of your, of your article. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Jim Thompson was this uh, amazing, eccentric uh, millionaire who came across to Thailand in the 1950s, um, early 1950s, and stayed. And he's credited with recreating the Thai silk industry. So he has an amazing house in Bangkok. And what's and really what's incredible about, about his house in Bangkok, and anyone who goes to Thailand, you must go and see it. So he's he was an architect, but he was also a founding member of the OSS, which you know was a precursor for the CIA. So right. quite an interesting guy. Very politically uh, contacted, you know, he had a lot of contacts here um, through that. And he arrived in Thailand and basically regenerated the entire silk industry. But the really cool thing about his house is that he designed it using Thai timbers from, from Thai houses all over Thailand. So he basically dismantled Thai houses, brought them all together in this one large compound, and then turned them inside out. So what was the inside walls? suddenly became the outside walls of the house that he actually lived in. So quite a quite an imaginative kind of guy. Well, he used to, uh, two or three times a year, he would come to the Cameron Highlands with some friends to get away from all of that. And one year he turned up with some friends of his and he was never seen again. So that cottage that uh, that he rented, we always rent that cottage when we go there, purely for the atmosphere, um, you know. <laughs> so you don't have the ghost of Jim Thompson wandering around the, the cottage? <laughs> I, I, you don't. I, I don't think you do. But it's actually a cool place to kind of go with friends and have party games and, you know, play murder mysteries and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But the the actual uh, disappearance of Jim Thompson was was huge. I mean, it, on a on a worldwide basis, it was massive. They flew mediums in uh, from the U.S. the The Malaysian government threw an enormous amount of manpower into looking for him, and basically, and even the Orang Asli. So the Orang Asli are the are the local, uh, the original. Uh, the originals of this island and you know they they go back over four thousand years and there's quite a lot of the orang asli that actually live up on uh in the cameron highlands and they even called in their best trackers and those guys couldn't find a thing it was like you know they they literally searched for him for for three weeks and they found no sign of him whatsoever but as i said in the in the article the the mystery was almost solved so there was a 
an English colonel who lived up there. And, um, you know, I run a publishing company here in, in, in Malaysia and I've got a great interest in books. And we found out that this particular guy had the, uh, a very extensive library going back to, you know, the, the late 1860s, 1870s. So we managed to get in contact with him. Um, he was in his 90s at this stage when we saw him. And we went to his house in the Cameron Highlands, and he was quite an interesting guy. He was married to a Chinese woman, which is actually super interesting because there's a, a just diverge a little bit. There's a, a book that came out by an author called Tan Tuan Eng, which became a bestseller around the world called Garden of the Evening Mists. And it's set in the Cameron Highlands. So if anyone's actually interested in the Cameron Highlands, this is a it's a it's a fascinating book that um, Tan Tuan Eng wrote. In that book, he actually mentions a uh, a British colonel who used to berate the the local tourists all the time, basically mm-hmm. telling them to you know as as the as a coach would arrive, you know he would kind of walk outside and shake his walking stick at them and tell them to you know to leave <laughs> the mountain, you know that kind of guy, that kind of character. Get so, off the um, line. <laughs> yeah, get off of my mountain. So he was that kind of guy. And it turned out that's that guy. So they actually Tan Twang Yang actually used him as a as a model for this um for this part of the story in his book. So I went up to see him. And even though he was he was married, you know, he was of an age where, you know, social distancing isn't really a thing, you know, and he sat, he sat quite close to me on the, um, on the, on the, on the sofa and, you know, he had his hand on my thigh and, you know, the whole thing, he was very kind of flirty that way. And, um, and it was at that stage when he turned around and said, you know, would you like to come up and see my library? I was like, well, I'm here to to do exactly that. (laughs) But I think there was, um, there was another connotation involved with, you know, uh, with his suggestion, but the the really cool thing was, I did see his library, uh, his actual library in the end. Um, but the the cool thing was, as I left, I kind of threw that as a as a throwaway question. It was like, well, you know, if you ever find out what happened to uh, Jim Thompson, let me know. And he said, well, he said, have another cup of tea and have a seat, and I will tell you what <laughs> happened. I was like, really? Is this another you know, come up and see my library right. kind of metaphor? <laughs> or is this really the the story of what happened to Jim Thompson? Um, but he actually told the story, and he said, "To you know, to reiterate what I said in the um, in the article, it was a, it has been a murder mystery, you know, since you know since the the late 1960s. No one has ever found out what happened to him. There's been numerous books that have been written about it. And he turned around to me and he said, you know, it's actually pretty simple. He said the the Indian gardener that I had for over 50 years died a few years ago." And on his deathbed, he actually admitted to knocking him down in the car. So Mm. effectively, at four o'clock in the afternoon, Jim Thompson would always take a walk. He would leave his bungalow. The the, the pathway even now is kind of crunchy stones. And as he walked along his pathway, the guests that he had staying with him heard him leave. And and that was it. They never heard another thing from him. And the Indian gardener effectively said, because the the house is actually on a, a bit of a blind bend, a blind corner. And he said, as he came round the corner in the car, he hit him and and he was killed outright. But then in a panic, because again, we're talking, you know, 1960s Malaysia, being an Indian, not really knowing what would happen to him. Um, he bundled the body into the boot and he took it down the mountain and he buried it in the jungle. Yeah. It occurred to me that in an area like that, there must be plenty of places to hide a body. Or dispose of a Not body. through experience, yeah. I'd be able to yeah. tell you that, but Jim. But. Well, again, it's for all the British <laughs> no, TV shows. 
You, you put it somewhere <laughs> yeah, where you know, a dog walker right. won't find it, right? Because it's always the dog walkers that find the bodies. Yeah, and the yeah, and you don't get a lot of those up there uh, due to the leeches. But the um, but the and there are there are a lot of pathways up there where you do get a lot of leeches. But I but I think the other important thing about the jungle is that the jungle in Asia grows incredibly fast, like literally mm. grows. You know, so fast you can actually watch it growing, and even in um, in Penang, there's a quarry very near the Penang Botanic Gardens, a very old quarry actually, going back to the 1930s. And um, above that quarry, and it just looks like pristine jungle, but there's a there's a really cool trail that kind of goes there. So the quarry wall, the height is probably about 150 feet, and uh, there's a trail that goes along there. And I was walking that trail one day, probably about six years ago now, and I stopped. And I actually went to lean on something and I, I kind of I kind of stumbled into vines and various different things. But behind those vines, there was a, a gun emplacement from the Second World War, like a, mm. an anti-aircraft gun that no one had even bothered to clear. So all the ammunition was there, you know, the gun was still there, but you would never have seen it. So the mm. jungle takes over things incredibly quickly and they just disappear. So I imagine if you you bury a body, you know, you're never going to find it. Right. A week later it's uh, all overgrown. Yeah, and there's a, there's actually another story. There was a there's there was a British battalion, well not a, there was part of a British battalion, uh, eight or nine men that stayed behind when the Japanese invaded in 1941. And they hid in the jungle, basically just trying to survive. And they were eventually turned in by a Malay, one of the Malays on the Kampong. And this is up in the Cameron Highlands. And the the Japanese uh, turned up one day and caught them. And they executed all of them on the spot. So all, all of the men there were beheaded. And they buried them in a mass grave in the Cameron Highlands. And we we found out about it. We we did a we we made a documentary in 2012 called 1941: The Fall of uh, Penang um, that ended up getting bought by the um, the History Channel. But it was a fascinating look mm-hmm. back. And what we managed to do was through the uh, that uh, that documentary and the investigations that we did, we actually found the guy who had turned the guys in. And he was a he was a young boy at the time, you know, a boy of ten or eleven, and we found him. And obviously, he was a very old man, and he'd been walking those jungle trails literally all his life. Never left the Cameron Highlands ever, and mm-hmm. even he couldn't take us back to where that mass grave was because the jungle had grown so much. Right, it just grows. You know, trees just grow where trees weren't. You know, five years before, and they mm-hmm. and they, you know, they tree. Uh, Wet forest trees are actually quite fast-growing trees. So, you know, you can literally have a an empty spot and within five years have a massive tree growing in that spot and you would mm-hmm. never recognize it. Now, are these highlands, uh, with the exception of the, the British who are there, is that an area where you see many expats living permanently or is it more of a tourist spot? No, it's you, as, as I mentioned to you, there's a lot of old expats there uh, mm-hmm. because – so Malaysia, just to give you a bit of reference, in 1946, uh, the war had ended and the emergency began. And the emergency didn't finish until 1960. So the emergency was effectively a war of attrition against the uh, the communists. So the British had actually cha- trained the Chinese communists to fight the Japanese during the war. And as soon as 1946 rolled around, the Chinese communists wanted a free Malaya. So they were actually fighting in the jungles of Malaya. And they called it the emergency so that the insurance companies would actually pay out on any farms or properties 
that were damaged. Because if it's a war, they don't pay out. But if right. it's an emergency, they do. So the emergency went from 1946 through to 1960. During that time, you had uh, a massive influx of colonial troops um, from as far afield as Canada, but mostly from the from the United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand, who basically fought here during that time. Uh, and also served in the police forces uh, during that time. And those guys never left. You know, a lot of those guys actually never left and ended up living in places like the Cameron Highlands. You know, they found it very hard to assimilate back into uh, places like Penang and Kuala Lumpur, so they stayed there. So there's still, probably now, there's still a handful of those guys there, um, but it's predominantly now locals who live there, and it's predominantly now local tourists that go there. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the expats that are here all visit there, but um, it's mostly local now. And if you're visiting the highlands, how, how would you reach them? I assume you have more than one one-way road now. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they've, they've widened the road. Um, so if you're coming from KL, it's uh, about a two-hour drive uh, north. And if you're coming from Penang, it's about a two-hour drive south. So quite easy access. And once you actually hit the, the foot of the Cameron Highlands, um, it's a, it's a one-way road. Uh, well, a one-lane road uh, either side. So uh, going up, going down, there's one lane each side. Um, and it takes you about 25 minutes to um, to get to the, the main village and, and surrounds. Well, it certainly sounds like it's worth the trip and a lot to do once you get there. It's definitely worth it because it's, it's akin to going back to colonial Malaya with the architecture that's there. And that alone is actually worthwhile going there for. They've also got an amazing golf course up there, a... Um, um, a five-star golf course up there, which is worth going to. And they've got a, a very eccentric hotel called the Smokehouse, which is a, a it's designed on a Tudor, an English Tudor house. So if you look at it, you look it looks like you're actually looking back, you know, to 16, 1700s England, but it's actually a very modern guest house. Also worthwhile going there for because the the evening meals there are to die for absolutely mm-hmm. amazing like it's almost worth just driving there for that and then driving back that that sounds like pretty uh high-end accommodations are there things to fit just about any budget in the area yeah that's actually you'd think it would be something like that would be expensive because it, it is all mod cons but it's actually not that only works out to be about 120 to 150 us per night and the the bungalow uh, that I talked to you about, Jim Thompson's bungalow, for instance, um, mm-hmm. that sleeps up to eight people, and that would be about the same, about 150 a night. There, there is, there is budget. There's budget accommodation up there as well. You know, kind of thirty to forty dollars a night. Um, so there, it really for for pretty much everybody. Is there any camping in the area? Is that a thing in uh, Malaysia? You, it is a it is a thing in Malaysia, but you wouldn't want to do it in the Cameron Highlands. Um, it's very wet. It's one of the wettest places in Malaysia, and on most of the trails, there's leeches. Not a big fan of leeches. <laughs> Lots of leeches. Yeah, and that's it's and it's it's quite serious leech trouble up there. So I don't think you'd want to go camping there. It's uh, it's not the the romantic kind of camping that you you do elsewhere in Malaysia or just the, the fun kind of camping you do anywhere else. It's very wet and very leachy. So people come there predominantly for the golf and the hiking trails and uh, just the, uh, the general much. beauty of the area. Yeah, look, and, and also the, as you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the, there's numerous tea plantations up there now, which are stunningly beautiful that have been formed over the last kind of 50, 60 years. Um, and they're, they're actually well worth a visit because they, 
it really is like going to a tea plantation in Sri Lanka or in India. They're that well, you know, formulated and they're quite large. Um, there's also organic farms up there, which are well worth visiting. In fact, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one organic farm up there that actually supplies all the organic food for every single restaurant in Singapore. So, and, and of course, you can go in and buy baskets of, you know, organic vegetables and, you know, various different things. So, absolutely worth it. They're, they're, they're seriously just worthwhile going to because it really is a step back in time. It's like stepping back into Malaya, not Malaysia, you know, mm-hmm. with the architect. And, and the people up there are just so lovely. They're really, really friendly uh, locals. You know, there's literally the last time I was up there, uh, one of the guys I was talking to on the on a fruit stall that I'd stopped at because they all the organic farms, you know, have their own stores. And I stopped and I was talking to this um, young Malay guy and he said, you know, he was telling me about a trail and I was like, you know, I don't know whether I could find that. That sounds really hard, but it sounded really beautiful because there was a, an amazing swimming hole um, at the end of it. And I'd never actually heard of the the swimming hole or the, or the trail. And he said, look, I mean, it was about midday. He said, look, he said, I'll just close up. And he said, I'll take you in. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, let's go. I was like, nice. okay. So that, they're that kind of people, you know, it's a, it's a friendliness that's very genuine and they're very keen to, you know, kind of show you where they live and what, and what's special about it. We've been talking with Keith Hockton, author of the May 2023 article, Murder and High Tea in the Cotswolds of Asia. You can hear more about Malaysia in episode eight of Bigger, Better World, a luxurious life for less on the island of Penang. Even better, you can meet Keith and a host of other expats and experts at the ultimate Go Overseas Boot Camp held this year in Denver, Colorado, September 2nd through the 4th. If you're interested in the conference, just check out the website, internationalliving.com, and click on the conference menu. Keith, thanks for joining us once again on Bigger, Better World, and I hope we get to speak to you again. That's fantastic. I hope I get to speak to you again too, Jim. The Bigger, Better World podcast is a production of International Living. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. If you have an idea for an episode or a question you'd like us to answer, email us at mailbag at internationalliving.com. And don't forget to put podcast in the subject line of your email. That's mailbag at internationalliving.com. We created Bigger, Better World to help showcase the ideas we explore at International Living each month and grow our community of travel lovers, expats, and experts who believe, as we do, that the world is full of opportunity to create a more interesting, more international life. You don't have to be rich or famous to do that. You just need to know the secrets. And that's what we bring you at International Living. If you haven't become a member yet, you can do it today with a special discount offer for podcast listeners. You'll receive our monthly magazine plus a bundle of special extras. You'll find the link in our show notes, or you can go to intliving.com slash podcast. That's intliving.com slash podcast. Next week, we'll be talking with an expert very familiar to international living readers when Susan Haskin joins us to talk about where you can find the California life for half the price. Until then, this is Jim Santos for International Living reminding you, There's a bigger, better world out there just waiting for you.